This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. They used to have this motto at the Charleston Gazette, the daily morning paper in West Virginia's capital city. It was just two words, sustained outrage. And that means, you know, you just don't do a one-off stories that you, in order to, you know, bring issues of injustice to light, you have to really hammer away. This unofficial mantra is what convinced Eric Ayer to pack up and move to this Appalachian state more than two decades ago. I call sustained outrage the rocket fuel for my reporting. Eric was a statehouse reporter for a long time, but he reserved most of his sustained outrage for the opioid crisis. Compared to other places, people here are much more likely to have an opioid prescription, much more likely to die from an overdose, too. Eric got obsessed with puzzling out how so many powerful narcotics got into his state in the first place. What he found was a web of drug distributors, companies that call themselves the central nervous system of healthcare. Companies like Cardinal Health, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen. They're huge. This company that I didn't know, Cardinal Health, uh, let me see what it was yes, last time, um, 16th largest company in the Fortune 500. Um, McKesson is the 8th largest, and Amerisource Bergen is number 10. So you've got, I think, Walmart's number one in the Fortune 500. Then you got Apple and Amazon. Then you get these companies that nobody's ever heard of. These companies had heard of Eric, though. He's learned that this week. That's because one of the county's hardest hit by opioid addiction in West Virginia has taken these companies to court. And as lawyers dredge up emails and documents about who knew what, when, it's put Eric's reporting center stage. The uh, trade group for these drug distributors had actually uh, put together, and I'm see if I can get the, I'm looking here at the transcript from yesterday's hearing, the crisis playbook, they called it. Just the crisis playbook. I guess that means the opioid crisis playbook. But it was, it was put together back in 2015, and it mentions me by name and talks about how they can blunt my reporting on this issue. I noticed one reporter who's covering this trial that's happening right now. Like he said, I think if I have a nickel for every time Eric Ayer's name has come up, I could buy myself lunch. Yeah, that was quite embarrassing. I'm glad I had a mask on <laughs> so you could see it was red in the face. Today on the show, a single county in West Virginia has decided to take on opioid distributors on their own. Whether their case succeeds depends on a lot more than whether they win in court. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person 
anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The opioid middlemen who find themselves in court this week, they're there because Eric says they've got this unique perch. They can see which pharmacies are ordering what, And that means they could have been a kind of early warning system for the opioid crisis. Instead, lawyers for Cabell County will argue that these distributors left rural places on their own. Cabell County has probably, in in the state with the highest overdose death rate, which is West Virginia, Cabell County has probably suffered more than any place in America. Back a couple years ago, they were had incidents of 26 overdoses in four hours. Um, all the national media descended on on Huntington Cabell. So Huntington has, has been through a lot. Um, the good news is they, they started to make some progress on reducing overdose deaths. They had two years, consecutive years of decreases, but now that the pandemic hit, it's unfortunately gone the other way. It's trending upward again. Hmm. So what is the county arguing? They're arguing that these distributors flooded, saturated, showered uh, their county Hmm. with opioids, and that led to a prescription drug problem, which then transferred to a heroin problem and now is a meth and a fentanyl problem. They say that these companies were not submitting under DEA rules. They were supposed to be submitting what they call suspicious drug order reports, which are reports that pharmacies are ordering way more uh, opioids than they really could possibly need, and they were ignoring those. And that at the end of the day, that they played a a critical role in the opioid crisis, and they need to be held accountable. You've noted that the argument that the county's making here is akin to one that might be made against a polluter that, you know, they created an environment that was bad for the public's health. It was a public nuisance. That's probably one of the strongest uh, arguments that that they can make because they're sort of, uh, the other is the causation argument that they didn't directly cause the opioid epidemic. Um, But it's going to be hard making the switch from, you know, holding them accountable for the prescription pills and then the switch to heroin, they, they, there's different layers and they're uh, trying to separate themselves directly from the, the proliferation of the prescription opioids. The distributors are trying to separate themselves and say the heroin's not us. Right. We don't distribute heroin. Yeah, there's like a couple degrees of separation. Hmm. But, you know, there's been a, you know, there's the CDC has done studies showing that, you know, 80% of people on heroin were using prescription drugs before they switch to heroin, prescription opioids in particular. So everyone's kind of pointing at each other here. Yeah. You know, people say, you know, what about the doctors? And I say, yes, it's, it's everybody. It's the doctors, it's the pharmacists, the manufacturers, the distributors, the regulators, DEA dropped the ball. They didn't, you know, spot some of these massive shipments that were coming into West Virginia. Um, the Board of Pharmacy, which ignored reports of suspicious orders by pharmacies. I mean, it was just this entire system. 
and I can't, I, I almost forgot the lobbyists and the politicians too. Uh, they contributed. Can't leave them out. Yeah. <laughs> the first time West Virginia sued a drug company over opioids was back in 2001. Purdue Pharma, the manufacturer of OxyContin, settled for $10 million. Since then, the state has sued distributors twice. They got a little more money from those suits, but nothing like the settlements other states have won. For comparison, two counties in Ohio got three times as much money from opioid distributors as the entire state of West Virginia. So I asked Eric, at the time, did those settlements seem like too little, too late? No, that's what's interesting. I mean, it didn't it didn't seem like, I mean, some people were complaining that it was a bad deal, but the first settlement they had was against Amerisource Bergen and Cardinal Health, and that was for $36 million. And it just, it was, it was kind of a different time. People weren't really talking about, that much about opioids. Um, so, and there was some, there was a lot of uncertainty in, in West Virginia here because we had a s- Supreme Court that was changing becoming more conservative, anti-consumer. And so did that mean advocates were kind of just happy to get anything? Yeah, and and they settled before the new Republican governor was sworn in, so there's that fear as well. But for comparison, I think it's useful to look at for instance big tobacco because it's a little it's a little apples and oranges because the master settlement agreement was over multiple states, not just one. But still, it was worth over two hundred billion dollars. And so you look at settlements for ten million and and thirty million, and you think that's a that's a big difference when you sort of line them up a little bit and start thinking about how they all add up together. Yeah, um, and w- what's interesting too is. Uh, our former attorney general, Daryl McGraw, was heavily involved in the tobacco settlement. And that was actually bringing in close to $60 million a year to the state of West Virginia. A year? Uh, yeah, over, over many years. So you're right when you compare that to the, I think, the grand total from the distributors that was received through the attorney general's lawsuits was $72 million. From what we know now, that was way too little. Huh. So I guess I wonder if this history of settlements makes the lawyers here for Cabell County want to fight harder because they've seen the settlements just look paltry in the years since and whether they think and it's hard to know what they're thinking, but whether there's some logic of we might as well just take this to court and duke it out because we have really been on the short end of the stick in the past and we can't do that again. I think there's a feeling, you know, they represent clients and including like the mayor of Huntington and others. And and there's this feeling that West Virginia kind of needs to see its day in court. It wants the world to know what happened here. It wants, you know, transparency. And they haven't had that. There hasn't been a trial. I mean, the the ones we just talked about previously were just, you know, settled and there was never any kind of trial. And, and, you know, they're going to bring their fire chief in and talk about, you know, what she sees every, 
you know, every day, you know, people dying of overdoses and having to respond to the same person over and over again. There's, there's going to be one of the county commissioners is going to testify about uh, her friends and families that have been impacted by the opioid crisis, you know, families that have lost in the same family more than one family member. So I, I think they want everybody to know what happened, how it happened, and why it happened. We'll be back after a break. One of the questions I had for Eric was about how much impact any kind of financial settlement would have on the lives of real people in West Virginia. In previous cases filed against these distributors, the state already got $72 million. So I wondered, where was that money now? Frankly, that's been a mystery um, I, I, that I need to solve. <laughs> uh, yesterday, we heard that actually the drug distributors at the hearing brought up that there's no guarantee that any proceeds from any settlement will, or, or award by the judge will go to you know, people with opioid use disorder, or drug treatment programs, et cetera. Why? Because they said that of the $72 million that they plan to show, and I haven't seen the evidence yet, but they plan to show that a third of it went to drug treatment programs, a third of it went to law enforcement with no stipulation on how they could spend the money, and then a third went straight to our attorney general's budget, his account. I haven't seen the details of this, but it was supposed to all go to treatment. You know, one of the arguments that the drug distributors, it was surprising to me, but they made yesterday in court, they said that, uh, hey, West Virginia doesn't need any more money for treating uh, the overdose crisis, um, that they've gotten plenty of federal funds to, to handle that. That was news to me, and that was news to a lot of other people. But they claim they have some public health official uh, wrote a letter to them or, or wrote a letter to the, the governor's office saying that they don't need as much money that, as they thought they needed. So they're saying the state's being greedy. Yeah. And I, I find that hard to believe, uh, but that's going to be one of their defenses. Hmm. I wonder if you think about what you think the most appropriate remedy would be here? Because we've talked about how problematic some of the previous settlements have been, too small or not enough oversight of where that money's going, a lot of it going to cops instead of maybe treatment programs or needle exchanges. And in fact, in West Virginia, my understanding is that a lot of people are kind of opposed to needle exchanges. They, they feel like they might make their communities less safe or you know, less pleasant. So what does that mean for a lawsuit like this? How you structure in what's actually needed on the other side of, of getting money? I think they can do it. And I'm glad you brought up the harm reduction programs because our legislature uh, just a month or two ago and the governor signed it into law, uh, basically uh, created such onerous onerous regulations for the few harm reduction. I think we have six harm reduction clinics, whereas like Kentucky has like 55. 
you know, basically we the harm reduction clinics are saying they're going to be put out of business by these onerous regulations. Uh, essentially, what we've done is outlawed one of the principal primary treatment options that people with substance use disorder have. And it's it's not just people getting, as you know, not getting just syringes. I mean, it's they're coming in and they're, they're going to get pointed into places that, that actually treat substance use disorder, medication-assisted treatment, et cetera. Um, it's a way to, you know, it's a step through the door to getting the help that they need. And the West Virginia legislature, not only did they do nothing that addressed the, the raging opioid crisis, they did things that actually weaken what we were currently doing, which was already very little. So um, I'm hoping that we can get this get this uh, tide turned, but uh, it's going to depend on resources. And and the next best shot we have is a uh, you know some sort of settlement from the, this uh, litigation that's ongoing right right at this minute. I wonder when you speak to people in West Virginia, if they have a good sense of who they blame for what's happened in your state. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people anymore are really trying to blame. I think they're trying to say, we need help. I mean, we need prevention. We need, you know, money for harm reduction programs for clean, you know, needle syringe exchanges. Um, we need more beds. I think we have, the last report I saw, there was 150,000 West Virginians suffering from substance use disorder. And there's something like the short-term, they call short-term beds available for treatment, was around 1,000. And I think another 1,200 of long-term treatment. And this is, Mary, I mean, the thing that people don't, it's not like the movies where somebody, uh, you know, detoxes in, in four days or, or, you know, goes through withdrawal for four days and then they pop up and they're fine. I mean, everybody I talk to, I mean, you know, I have a lot of friends that I have that are in the addiction treatment uh, side, they say it's like a good three to five years, three to five years. You know, it's, it's not something you're going to turn the tide overnight. Uh, and it's something that they live with all the time. Um, thank goodness there are success stories. It can happen. People can get better. People are tired of, you know, everybody pointing fingers at everybody. Just put the resources where they're needed, and maybe we can tackle this problem and, and save, save more lives. Eric, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Eric Ayer is an investigative reporter. He works at Mountain State Spotlight now. He's also the author of Death in Mudlick a coal country fight against the drug companies that delivered the opioid epidemic. And that is our show. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Davis Land, Carmel Delshad, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery help us ask better questions every day. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs> 